At Founders Brewing Company, we set out to create a beer that lets you embrace the unconventional. Mortal Bloom is a radiantly beautiful, hazy IPA that will wrap your taste buds with intense citrus and tropical notes of pineapple and mango. Coming in at 6.2% ABV with big aromatics and no bitterness, it's the perfect beer, if we do say so ourselves. Visit foundersbrewing.com to find Mortal Bloom Hazy IPA. Imagine bold, naturally aged Tillamook cheddar slices melting over a burger, eating thick-cut cheddar shreds straight from the bag. <sighs> it's nice to dream about cheese for a bit. Tillamook cheddar, extraordinary dairy. Welcome to True Crime Garage. Wherever you are, whatever you are doing, thanks for listening. I'm your host, Nick, and with me, as always, is a guy that, unlike Drew Brees and Zeke Elliott, he actually had Thanksgiving Day off. He is the well-rested captain. Well, I actually had a very tough matchup in the CFL where I crushed Johnny Manziel, but thanks for watching. It's good to be seen, and it's good to see you. Thanks for listening. Thanks for telling a friend. This week, we are sipping on Clockwork Tangerine by Brewdog, garage grade four and a half bottle caps out of five. This is a Tangerine Session IPA and was the winner of the 2017 Prototype Challenge. This is a Sessions Strength IPA infused with tangerine, and this week's beer was brought to us by the strong, strong friends of the show right here. First up, we have Thomas from Birmingham, Alabama with a donation to the Beer Fund and some good beer suggestions as well. And a big cheers, mates, to Mary Ellen, parts unknown. And a raise of the glass goes out to Sarah in Baltimore, Maryland. And a big shout out to Jenny from the Shamrock, Jenny from Ireland. Oh, and here's another Jenny from Turlock, California. And last but not least, we have Holly in Peoria, Illinois. All right. Thanks to everybody that filled up the fridge this week. If you'd like to fill up the fridge for next week, go to truecrimegarage.com and click on the donate page. That's right. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, gather around, grab a chair, grab a beer. Let's talk some true crime. With the approaching holiday comes gifts. Gifts handed out at work or passed from hand to hand sitting around a Christmas tree. Gifts wrapped with love and sent off. Mailed to an old friend or distant family member. And who among us does not love a neatly wrapped package complete with decoration arriving at our homes and addressed to our name? In December of 1996, in Ontario, Canada, 
Wayne Gravette received a gift, unexpectedly. The package was neatly prepared, delivered to his mailbox, and brought into his home. A letter accompanied the package. Wayne opened the box with his family surrounding him, and he discovered a large Duracell flashlight inside the box. Wayne took a look at it and tried the on switch, but nothing happened. Wayne's son, Justin, then tried turning the flashlight on, but again, nothing happened. Wayne grabbed the flashlight from his son and walked over to the sofa in the family room and sat down. He tried the on switch one more time, and boom, the flashlight exploded, spraying the room with roofing nails, shattering the window, and knocking Justin and his mother to the floor. Justin got up and ran to the phone, and he called 911. The flashlight bomb killed Wayne Gravette right there in front of his family. Who would do something so cowardice to this man and his family? Was this the work of some type of assassin, a contract killer, or simply someone that hated this man so much so that they sent an improvised exploding device through the Canadian Postal Service to Wayne's home with the intent to kill? This is the tragic story of Wayne Gravette and the bomb that took his life. Wayne was born on January 4th, 1954 in Ontario, Canada. Now, there's not a great amount of detail that is known about his early life, but we do know Wayne started working for the 7-Up Bottling Company when he was just 18. He became an expert in the mechanical side of the bottling industry, fixing and installing machinery, conveyor belts, and assembly line equipment. From there, Wayne moved on to Surge Packaging and Machinery, a company located in Acton, Ontario. The company sold, installed, and repaired equipment for bottling businesses in both Canada and the U.S., so this is a very large company. Wayne worked there for many years, but was no longer with Surge when he was murdered. Now, regarding his personal life, Wayne met Diane when they were young. She was just 15, and he was 19. Diane's home life wasn't great, and as Diane puts it, Wayne got her out of a bad situation. So the two moved in together when Diane was just 16, and they got married the following year. They ended up having two kids, Danielle and Justin. Wayne's wife and kids tell the story of a man who was a great father. He loved his kids, and Diane and Wayne seemed to embrace a secluded lifestyle. Diane says they had a few friends, and the rest of the people in their lives were business acquaintances. Diane says Wayne was controlling and domineering. But she loved him very much. The two were a team, but Wayne, while an adoring father on the home front, he was abrasive and confrontational at times when it came to business. 
Diane said, quote, Wayne was mouthy and cocky, end quote. Detective Paul Johnson says Wayne was the kind of person who told people what he thought, and he had altercations with several people. Wayne was also a man's man. He rode a Harley and played poker. The few friends he did have were mostly hard-drinking blue-collar buddies that he met in the bottling industry. Diane says Wayne was away a lot for work and sometimes did not come home at night after drinking with the guys. And he was not the best husband. He had affairs. And Diane says they had fights, sometimes bad ones. He had, an, he had a temper, but she loved him. He loved her and they were a family. Both Wayne and Diane were employees of Surge for quite a while, but in 1993, Wayne had a falling out with and left the company. So Wayne and Diane started up his own bottling equipment company. A secretary, Lisa, from Surge came to work with them. They named the company DNL after Diane and Lisa. This was, depending on who you talk to, Captain, there's mixed reviews on this company. So most of the reviews on this seem like it was a fairly successful company, while I have found others that state that the company had problems, that they were never really making a whole bunch of money and were having trouble staying afloat. Well, there's also a lot of rumors that he was taking jobs and taking payments for jobs and never completing them. That he might have been conducting bad business, right? let's say. In 1996, the Gravettes bought a 104-acre farm in Moffat, Ontario. At this time, DNL wasn't doing very well. This property has a natural spring, large enough that they could use the spring as a source for a bottled water business. With Wayne's expertise and access to bottling equipment and supplies, they decided to make a go for it. They moved to the farm sometime around June of 96, and apparently they loved it there. Wayne set up a shop in the barn and started bottling and selling water. Now let's talk about the events of December 12th, 1996. The farm is in Moffat. This area is about 35 miles from Toronto. But while Toronto is a huge city, Moffat is quite rural. The farm had a long dirt driveway and a mailbox at the end of this driveway for the family's mail. Diane and Wayne's 21-year-old son, Justin, was home on the farm that day. His sister, Danielle, was not. She was out with a boyfriend. Justin went out around midday to get diesel fuel for one of the vehicles, and on his way out, he stopped at the mailbox. There he found a package wrapped in white paper, decorated with ribbon, and addressed to Mr. Wayne Gravett, RR number 1, Moffat, Ontario, LOP 1J0. Justin put the package in his vehicle, drove to town, got gas, and returned home. When he returned, his dad was in the barn. Eventually, Wayne joined the rest of the family in the house around 1 p.m. Along with Justin and Diane, there was also Wayne's brother. I couldn't find the name of Wayne's brother. Standing in the kitchen, Wayne opened the package. The first thing he saw was an envelope that said, Merry Christmas. Wayne perused the letter it was a business proposal. Inside the box were crumpled up flyers from various advertisers. Placed inside the box, this was used as likely padding. Right. After removing the papers, Wayne pulled out a large Duracell flashlight. So this is a bulky flashlight with a handle on it. 
Yeah, and we'll post all these pictures on our Instagram at True Crime Garage. Dwayne flicked on the power switch, but nothing happened. So Justin took the flashlight and tried the button as well, but the light did not come on. He tried to open up the battery compartment, but couldn't. It seemed like it was glued or fastened shut. Wayne took the flashlight back, moving into the family room and sitting down on the sofa. He then tried the switch again, and the room exploded. They called 911 immediately after the explosion. You heard a portion of that call during our trailer. The trauma and fear in Diane's voice is palpable. She's, she's screaming. The flashlight was a cleverly disguised bomb. The interior of the flashlight was filled with explosives that were sparked by the activation of the on switch. Packed around the explosives were a large number of roofing nails. The nails did exactly what they were intended to do. They sprayed Wayne in the area around him. The front of Wayne's body, including his face, basically blew up. Blood sprayed all over the walls, windows shattered, nails flew through the drywall and into other rooms, even embedding in the ceiling. Yeah, he basically lost everything from his face down to his thighs. I hate to paint this unfortunate picture, but you have to picture for a second the man sitting there on the sofa, the flashlight basically in his lap, and he's looking down at the flashlight when this bomb goes off. So he absorbed almost all of the blast. According to investigators, he died instantly. Let's talk about the investigation, Captain. So when the police arrived, they found the family room covered in debris. Broken furniture and glass were everywhere. Wayne's body was still lying on the couch, now covered with a blanket. And his family was in hysterics. The Ontario police, they closed off the scene and sent the family elsewhere for questioning. Detective Paul Johnson of the homicide unit was put in charge of the investigation. Processing the scene took several days. Police gathered the names of business associates and colleagues of Wayne's and started looking through his business, banking, travel, and phone records. And the package that was holding the bomb, it was confirmed that was delivered through the mail. But also the box was a wine box as well, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, the mail carrier, her name is Joyce, said that her and her daughter and small grandson were in her mail truck that day, helping with packages and deliveries on her route. She remembered the package to Wayne because of a pretty ribbon that was on this package. She also noted that the package fitted, it fit exactly into the mailbox. Joyce was still out on her route when she heard the sirens, but she didn't discover what had actually happened until the following day when she arrived at the post office which was now crawling with cops. Okay, so Captain, what kind of evidence can we collect from the packaging? First, it had a large number of stamps on it, amounting to extra postage. So it would appear that someone wanted to make sure that this wouldn't get returned, that they put more than enough to guarantee that it would be delivered. Of course, you're not going to want a package that's a bomb to be returned to you. Well, and unfortunately, no DNA was found on the stamps or the packaging. Well, also something with the packaging, the box that it held in, like I said, was wine. So you wonder, he's in the distributing business. Is there somebody that distributes wine that would have access to this box to put the bomb in? Well, this is a red and cream colored cardboard box from a cheap brand of red wine, a Cabernet. Uh, the box is sort of 
flowery with a vase and red blooms on it. Yeah, but I believe there's some numbers that are scratched off the box to kind of hide the identity of where the box came from or where this wine would come from. Well, I don't know about scratched off, but the the UPC number or the barcode that would be on the box, uh, which could have likely told us where the wine was purchased or maybe even to whom it was sold, this was cut off. Okay. Uh, It had been removed from the box. So this perpetrator was was smart enough to take the effort to do this. Uh, Police would ultimately comb through the purchase history records of all of the liquor stores in the area close to the Gravettes farm to try to determine who bought this wine, but they came up with nothing. So, well, this this also makes it a lot more difficult too, because since it's mailed, you got to figure out how far away was this mailed from? Right. And, you know, here's another thought here, though, too, Captain. This box simply could have been uh, from a recycling bin or trash bin rather than a purchase. Right. uh, Making it even less traceable, if not traceable, you know, not traceable at all. Well, and I wonder if there's something where if you cut off uh, the UPC or whatever, if there was some, like, collect your UPCs and you get free wine or whatever. So, like you said, could have been found in the trash or found in a recycling bin. And it was the actual owner of the box that cut off the UPC and not some clever way to disguise where it came from. Possible. Possible. I think it, I think it shows the um, thoroughness of the person that mailed the bomb. They did find two hairs under the packaging tape, but no root on them. And even after mitochondrial DNA testing was conducted by the FBI, no DNA profile was able to be put together. Investigators theorized that the perp deliberately avoided licking the stamps uh, and used excess number of stamps to ensure delivery and stamped it themselves to avoid taking the package to the post office. So putting this into a mailbox and then having it delivered by the postal service so they could remain anonymous. And the package was wrapped in inside out Christmas paper, meaning that the decoration part was facing the box and not to the people opening the box. Yeah. So it's, it's Hunter green in color, but the white part of the paper is on the outside of the package is what's visible. And the address was typed. So now on the inside of that box, we talked about the flyers that were crumpled up and used likely for padding. Yeah. These advertisements. Yeah. So these are crumpled up and they're packed around the flashlight These came from a wide distribution area in Southern Ontario, but one, one of these advertisements came from Copeland Lumber at 700 Main Street in nearby Milton, and it was only distributed locally. Yeah, but let's ponder this for a minute. Is this a mistake? Is this a mistake by the person sending the bomb? Or we're dealing with uh, people that do packaging, right? Mm -hmm. And, And they do a lot of traveling. Was this deliberate? Like I could grab the ads from here. I'll package the bomb. I'll mail it from somewhere else and that will throw them off. Could be. So the situation here though, is if somebody's just grabbing them, uh, you know, if they're grabbing a bunch of them, a big stack of these, this is, this is the thought that the majority of that stack would be advertisements from all over the place. And then we have this one in the batch that was only distributed in a very small location. 
So it would mean that this person had some kind of, could have had some kind of connection to this nearby town of Milton. Right. But what I'm saying is this is a business where people travel often. So all I'm saying is if you don't live in Milton, but you travel there, let's say every two weeks, pick up some ads while you're there. What do you mean this is a business where we travel often? Wayne is in the business where they... Right, our victim. Our victim is in the business of traveling often. We don't know who sent this bomb or, or what business the killer is in. Right, but I, right, but my point is, is that that if you look at the suspects as far as business-wise goes, he they're in the same business as Wayne. One thing I've wondered about, and I would wager or at least hope that they did look at this, Captain, is that... You know, checking Cumberland Lumber, checking that business to try to determine if the nails or even the flashlight were purchased there. Right. And we should note that Wayne did work in the town of Milton for many years at uh, several companies, but I believe that is exactly where that large company surge is located as well. Right. To me, like I said, to me, it's it's deliberate or it's a mistake and my gut feeling thinks this is a mistake. Me too, because we have one out of many uh, that were placed in that and only one. Uh, the other thing I wonder too. Well, then we'll agree to agree. Well, but the other the other part of that though too is I would think that the individual using this as padding likely might not know about the distribution or circulation of these flyers. Yeah, that's a very good point. Um, the flashlight, of course, was obliterated in the blast, but it was determined to be a gray plastic Duracell floating lantern, about 23 centimeters long and 15 centimeters tall. They call it a lantern because mm-hmm. it doesn't look like a lantern to me. It just looks like a big flashlight. It was packed with plastic explosives, uh, a blasting cap, and the nails uh, that we talked about. So turning it into a powerful concentrated bomb containing super frack. This is an explosive used in the mining industry for breaking apart rocks or, or large rock. This is not a bomb that would go off. If you hit it with a hammer or dropped it, it requires a trigger, which is why it was wired to the on switch. Police determined the super frack was readily available within the mining industry. It could have been purchased through a manufacturer or stolen from a gravel pit or any distributor. So I don't think they were able to track down the source of this explosive. Now there is debate about the experience level needed to construct the bomb. Most investigators uh, think that someone could have learned how to put this together from the internet or a magazine or a book. Right. So let's talk about the letter. Because inside, uh, along with the flashlight bomb, was this envelope, and inside was a letter. On the envelope was handwritten label of Merry Christmas. Um, It's a typed letter inside on simple 8.5 by 11 sheet of white paper. Yeah, how about you start by just reading it straight through. Okay, it says, Mr. Wayne Gravett, Dear Sir, My partners and I are opening a new business sometime early in the new year called Acton Home Products and would be very interested in having you give us a price on rebuilding some equipment. You did some work for a company I was with a few years ago, and although you won't remember me, Lisa and your delivery man Joe most likely will. 
We don't plan on doing anything until after the new year, but would be most anxious to proceed at that time. We have no staff or office in place just yet, but you can reach us by mail at our new address below. Thanks for your time, and I'll look forward to hearing from you sometime early in the new year. Sincerely, William J. French, Acton Home Products, RR number one, unit number six, Acton, Ontario, L7G2N1. P.S. Didn't realize you had moved. Had some trouble finding you. Have a very Merry Christmas, and may you never have to buy another flashlight. The evidence keeps pouring in. At this point, the facts are undeniable. It's an open and shut case. Monopoly Go is the most fun you can have in a mobile game. Everyone is still talking about Monopoly Go for a good reason. It is an absolute hit. Millions of people pass Go every day because this game is always bringing something new to the table. Like countless crazy tournaments, you can join with your friends as partners or teams. Or timed events, offering bonuses like massive multipliers or rent frenzies to help you get huge rewards. And there's so many rewards to discover. Rare stickers you can trade with friends to complete albums. Delightful emojis to taunt people with when you raid their riches. Unique playing pieces and so much more. The verdict is in. With Monopoly Go, there's something new to discover every time you play. So don't miss out. Go download it now free on the App Store and Google Play. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. We all carry around different stressors, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking of starting therapy, I highly recommend that you give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com garage today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash garage. This show is proudly sponsored by BetterHelp. Check out BetterHelp.com slash garage today. Do you want to set your child up for success? Of course you do. That's why you need to check out IXL Learning today. IXL Learning is an online learning program for kids covering math, language arts, science, and social studies. IXL is designed to help them really understand and master topics in a fun way. It's powered by advanced algorithms. IXL gives the right help to each kid, no matter the age or personality. There's one site for all kids in your home, pre-K to 12th grade. Kids could use it at home on their computer or on an app on your phone or a tablet. No more grading those worksheets. IXL grades everything for you. One in four students in the U.S. are learning with IXL. IXL is used in 95 of the top 100 school districts in the U.S. I love recommending IXL Learning. Kids can learn at home or on the go. And all my friends and family 
that are using it absolutely love it because it's so easy to set up and so easy to use. And even the kids that I've recommended it to their parents have told me, hey, Captain, thank you. I was having problems in math and my parents couldn't help me, but IXL could. Do you want to get your kids back on track or do you just want to get your kids ahead? Do so with IXL Learning. Make an impact on your child's learning. Get IXL now. And True Crime Garage listeners, get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when you sign up today at IXL.com slash garage. Visit IXL.com slash garage to get the most effective learning program out there at the best price. Check out IXL.com slash garage today. Warmer, sunnier days are calling. Fuel up for them with factors, no prep, no mess meals. Meet your wellness goals in time for summer thanks to the menu of chef-crafted meals with options like Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. Factor's fresh, never-frozen meals are dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. So no matter how busy you are, you'll always have time to enjoy nutritious, great-tasting meals. With 35 different meals and more than 60 add-ons to choose from every week, you'll always have new flavors to explore. Crush your wellness goals this May with dietitian approved meals and ingredients that you can trust. Make your day delicious from breakfast to dessert. Stay fueled with easy, nutritious options. Treat yourself to restaurant quality meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, shrimp, and blackened salmon. I am new to Factor and I have been loving every minute of it. I have a problem and it's called lunch. Some days I need a pack of lunch and some days I work from home. Whether I'm at home or whether I'm on the go, Factor is fueling my lunch from now on. Head to factormeals.com slash truecrimegarage50 and use code truecrimegarage50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month. That's code truecrimegarage50 at factormeals.com slash truecrimegarage50 to get 50% off your first box, plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active. All right, we're back. Cheers, mates. Cheers. Now, the letter that we just discussed, it was left intact after the blast. That's why we know what it said. Right. And there were no fingerprints found on it. It was typed on a Smith Corona electric typewriter, which from what I've read is a fairly common typewriter. It would not be easy to identify this as it's too common. Right. Well, this is also for home use and office use, but the font in the letters was significant. Yeah. The, the letter was typed in all caps and experts identified it as script 10 slash 12 font. This is not an all business font like, you know, like Times New Roman or something like right, this. This is more like a, a personal. Friendly, yeah. It's almost like a handwritten font. Yes. The font was created by inserting a daisy wheel, essentially a round disc with letters, numbers, and symbols on spokes into the typewriter experts were able to tell police that this daisy wheel was sold under the model number five, nine, five, four, three 
Police were optimistic about this daisy wheel for two reasons. One, according to statistics, at the time, only 2% of people who had this kind of typewriter owned that particular type of daisy wheel. Right. Two, police saw that it contains what appears to be an imperfection in the periods in the letter. So each period is followed by a small slash. So it kind of like resembles a, a comma. This flaw is likely specific to this single one daisy wheel. Right. So if the writer of the letter used this daisy wheel in any other correspondence, it it should be able to be identified because it would have the same imperfection. Now here here's some some tricky things. Okay, so when you buy like this model of the Smith and Corona, right, that you can buy extra daisy wheels. So where it gets a little more complicated is this could have been, I mean, they would have had to have some knowledge of their electric typewriter, but uh, let's say their original font was, you know, Times New Roman, right? Mm -hmm. And they used that for everything. But for this one, they used just that daisy wheel just for this letter. That's where it could be a little more complex as far as if they never typed anybody else a letter using this daisy wheel, then... Yeah. 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 If they were smart enough to just use it this one time and then toss it. Yeah. Cause when you go to buy these back in the day, you, you'd have the option. Like mm -hmm. you'd be like, okay, I'll, I'll take this, uh, you know, electric typewriter. And then the person would go, but you can have all these different fonts. And so people would buy extra daisy wheels. I wonder if you could buy them at any time. Like if you don't have to buy it when you're making the purchase of the typewriter, I would think you could buy it at yeah, any time. I'm, ass I'm assuming you can. And then they're just looking at the straight up statistics of sales and going, okay, well, X, uh, X number of people own this typewriter or X number of these typewriters have been sold. And then X number of these daisy wheels have been sold throughout the year. So somebody essentially could have went somewhere and purchased it with cash. Right. Um, and not with the actual typewriter. And like you said, using it once, if you were smart enough or sneaky enough to use it only that one time and then toss it, um, see, I, this to me is, is the essence of a lot of these cases that we discuss. You have something here that you're like, holy crap, that's it. That's this could be everything. That's the thing we've been looking for. This is what we can tie our rope to and where we can find our perpetrator. And then at some point you go... It just didn't get us there. Right. It just it didn't could get be us there. Everything or it could be nothing. Yeah. I it, mean, for example, it's typed in all caps, right? Mm -hmm. So law enforcement said, hey, well, do we know anybody that, you know, worked with Wayne or, or knew Wayne that just typed this way, that threw on all caps and that's how they sent letters? Mm -hmm. Again, was this something they did on purpose? Or was this machine, for whatever reason, was the caps lock broke and they had to type this way? Right. Was was this something that was deliberate or just a... Happenstance. Yes. So police did, they parsed through all of Wayne's correspondence and they did ask everyone in the area who conducted business with Wayne or within the bottling industry to examine their correspondence to look for this abnormality uh, but nothing came of this. Could the killer have been, you know, smart enough to just use it once 
that's the thing that we will never be able to wrap our heads around until this case is solved. Now the letter was signed using the name William J. French. Of course, there was no such person and Acton home products. The company name also did not exist. The address RR number one unit number six in Acton also was not a business address. It actually was a postal code for a residence. Now, I don't know who lived there, um, who lived at this address, but it's very safe to say, I'm assuming that the OPP, yeah, you know me, the police checked out the resident thoroughly. Mm-hmm. We just don't know whether the killer selected this address at random or if it holds again, if it means anything, does it hold any significance? Yeah. And see, I wonder if the Acton home products, was okay like the first part of the letter right was that set up to let wayne know who this is coming from you see what i mean oh yeah like what were the clues because at one point he they also said uh something about uh lisa and joe Mm -hmm. lisa lisa being uh wayne's basically secretary and, and business lady Mm-hmm. And then Joe was a delivery guy. They would know us, mm-hmm. but you probably don't remember us. Yeah, they, the Joe and Lisa might remember me or remember us. Yeah, and I wonder if that was like a hint at uh, you might be having a hard time placing who's sending you this letter. But that's because we gave you money, so Lisa knows us and Joe knows us, but you never came to do the job. I wonder if that's some some kind of clue there. Yeah, or is it a taunt? Right. And, and what I mean by that is is a couple things. And, and and here it's such a petty thing to do because if your intent is to instantaneously blow this guy up, then then it's what is the taunt? I don't understand because you're you're cluing him in that so and so might know me or know us. Right. But then you're signing this with a fictitious name. So immediately Wayne, if he made it to the end of the letter is going to go, I don't know William J. French. And we know he wouldn't know that because it's not a real person. Well, he was a real person. We have just no clue if, if Wayne knew of this guy, if you look up William J. French, all it comes to, or all I could find is a grave site that was buried. He was buried in Toronto. Right, and someone that passed away well before this incident. Right, so we we could assume, I mean, way, way before the bombing, we could assume that he doesn't know him, but is it like some kind of clue? Because if you're sending this bomb, it's almost like you sent this letter to get this message across to Wayne. So what in this letter would be a clue for Wayne to go, oh, shit, I know who sent this. And that's what I mean. If it's a taunt, it's like a super, it's super petty is what I mean by this because of a couple of reasons. If Wayne reads this letter, you know, first of all, the the killer, the person sending it, he's sending it with the intention that Wayne will read it if he wants, if he wants to taunt him before killing him. But then the thought then too is, well, what kind of taunt is this? If, if your thought, your plan, your hopes are that he reads it and then he flips on the switch and boom, the flashlight explodes, then the taunt is, is kind of lost. You know what I mean? It's almost like 
if you set out to taunt Wayne before you kill him, I guess, are you hoping to, that you put just enough in this letter that somebody's name or face is going to pop into his mind before he turns on the flashlight? Right. You know, and because the old shit, I know this, who this letter's from is not necessarily an old shit moment because you don't know that the flashlight's a bomb yet. You know what I mean? Like, um, unless you have some severely bad blood with this individual. Now, of course we know that it's a bomb. So you would think there was some bad blood there, but sometimes bad blood is one sided. Yeah. Where it's like, uh, I hate you. You don't even know I hate you yet. There are some interesting things in the letter though, because we have, we have a couple of things, right? So it is addressed specifically to Wayne. So this is not, uh, we know he is the intended target of the bomb. It's not just some random act, mm-hmm. you know. We also know that the the killer knew enough about Wayne to know what kind of business he was in and that he had recently moved. You know, well, he, And that he knew employees of Wayne's. Right. And the police believe that, that it's likely that the killer was not someone who was close to Wayne at the time of his death because whoever sent the bomb didn't seem to know Wayne's new address. Now, the thought here is that this seems likely because one thing that was uncovered was that two men were seen at the Acton, Ontario branch of the post office about a month earlier. One man went inside the post office and inquired about where Wayne lived. And oddly, the other man asked people outside of the post office. This is a a small town, so it's not, I guess, that strange to ask strangers where someone lives. But in order to send something through the mail in Canada, you need the exact postal code for the address. And there are over 855,000 different postal codes in Canada. Yeah. Well, that's compared to the U S where we have like 42,000 ish zip codes. Yeah. Well, again, it's like, there's these like little things that make you think that this is like a clue to him. For example, um, had a hard time finding you right Mm -hmm. because of the new address. And there was these reports that he was getting phone calls and and Wayne was telling people, Hey, uh, just tell him I'm not here. So again, was this a situation where he promised to do a job, took payment for a job and he took off and went missing and and then that that person had to track him down to even figure out where he was at. Yeah, so the the Gravettes moved from Acton away to the farm in Moffat in June of 1996. This is 19 kilometers away. So you have to wonder there they the Gravettes once lived in Acton And these two men were seen at the Acton, Ontario branch. So did these two men assume that Wayne still lived in Acton or never knew his address and only knew that he lived in that town? Right. So sketches were made of the two men, but they have not been able to identify them. So the sketches have led to really nothing. I'm sure, like we know with most cases, a lot of times when you have a sketch thrown out there that the police end up getting receive and receiving a lot of lookalike calls, right? Hey, I know so-and-so and you should talk to him. Well, how's he connected to the case? Well, he looks like the guy. Yeah. And then they look at the guy, they talk to him and find out he has absolutely no connection to anything. Who knows how reliable these sketches are in the first place. You have to wonder because 
These are composite sketches made using eyewitnesses who had an unremarkable conversation or conversations with two people inquiring about an address a month before this happened. Right. All right. Back to the letter. The writer actually knew Wayne's business fairly well. And I say this because in the letter naming Lisa and Joe. So Lisa Irvin was the secretary from, from surge. You had already mentioned her, but she was from the surge company and she ultimately left the company and started DNL with him and his wife. Yeah. Diane. Like I said, even though I think the title was more secretary, I think she knew the books and knew the business very well. Oh yeah. The interesting thing here though, too, captain is Lisa's name is actually spelled L E E S A. Yeah. So we don't know if the letter writer actually didn't know this. And what I mean by that, because in the letter it's spelled L I S A, you know, the more common way I actually never had seen the name Lisa spelled L E E S A. Was it L L E E S A or is it L E E Z A or something weird? I thought, well, I, I have her name as, as technically being spelled L E E S A. And in the letter it's spelled the more common spelling right, right. of L I S A. So that makes you wonder a couple of things. Yeah. Yeah. S A. You have that right. Sorry. What it doesn't make you wonder. It doesn't, there's no way that somebody just has, just connects that unless they know that specifically about Wayne or his company. You don't just randomly pick two names and they actually had something to do with one of his companies. And the crazy thing though, is if I had only heard that name out loud, you know, only heard that name spoken, never seen it written, never seen it. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Then that's how I'm going to spell it in my taunting letter that I'm sending along with my bomb. Right. And then the thing with Joe there, he was actually uh Giuseppe Zotic. Zachik? Yeah, I think he's technically the delivery driver. It sounds like he held several different roles with this company, but but mostly was a delivery man. And he did go by Joe. So again, you have to wonder, like, is this just a red herring designed to throw investigators onto the scent of a, a business associate? You know, someone that would have heard these names aloud, Joe, yeah. Lisa, or is this somebody that was even tighter with Wayne and actually knew these people a little bit. You okay? This let's just ponder this for a minute and try to help me. You help me, right? Why send a letter at all? It's it's almost like the only point of sending the letter is to get it into Wayne's head. You know who sent this, or you send a letter because this has nothing to do with business but you know Wayne enough where you can make it seem like, oh, well, Wayne would take money for jobs and not do them, and we we have a history of that. So if I make this seem like it's connected to Wayne's business, then they're not going to look at me because this is a personal matter. So I I went through some old uh, bombing cases that were later solved and trying to add some psychology to even the packaging and, you know, this letter, of course, you know, a lot of times when, when people will attach a note to a bomb, there have most of the time, it's almost an assumption by the creator of the bomb that the, the letter or the note will be destroyed in the blast and that no one will ever have 
read that letter other than the target. Right. But see here, I kind of, I'm kind of more with you. I, I think, I think with what you're saying here is, is it just to throw them off the scent? I don't know. I don't know either, <laughs> but I think that that might be the case. And what I mean by that is that I see actions being taken with the, the packaging of this bomb that indicate to me that they didn't, whoever packaged this up, you know, like the removal of the barcode, the zip of the uh, UPC symbol that shows to me that they didn't intend for the packaging to blow up with the bomb or, or be destroyed in the blast that they took precautions that they thought that the packaging would likely survive the blast. So well, therefore well, think it, about it this I, way. I, I mean, I kind of carry that over to the letter as well. Like well, assuming that the letter would survive the blast. Right. And you'd think though, with a gift, most of the time when you grab it, maybe you don't turn it on right away. I mean, that's, that's the other thing too. It wasn't like this, um, the trigger wasn't once you pull it out of the box, it blows up. It mm-hmm. was, you have to turn this on. So, I mean, you don't know this. What if he was like, I know how a flashlight works. I don't need to test it. You know what I mean? Right. Like, so he just puts it over to the side. So, again, that's a tough thing because, yes, you would think most bombers would assume if I write a little note, it's on the package, it blows up, the note's going to blow up too. But uh, in this case, it's like because the trigger is turning it on, who knows where that package is going to be once the the bomb is away from that package. Well, and that's that's that something that... makes sense. No, I, I see what you're saying. What Essentially, what you're saying is this, okay? If if I'm killing someone, if I'm going to go out and kill someone, if I if I'm looking at them through across a field through the scope of a rifle, yes. Even if there are people around them, I could put them in the crosshairs and choose that that's the individual that I'm going to shoot at. When you send a bomb, a flashlight bomb that is triggered through the action of the on switch through the mail, you are then hoping that your target is the one that flicks that switch and it ignites the bomb. Yeah, because if I'm if I'm not wrong, I believe his son said that he tried to turn it on. His son did try to turn it on. And, and we also noted that his wife and his brother were in the room with him or in right. a nearby room when the when the flashlight exploded. So it's almost here here's what I wonder. Is the letter itself not a taunt? Is it is it in some way meant to throw them on the scent of somebody else? I don't know. I actually lean toward the thought of this. If I'm the killer, I'm thinking the the letter will survive the blast. The packaging survives the blast. But the purpose of my letter is to increase the likelihood that Wayne is the one that flicks the switch and not someone that is just an innocent bystander. Hmm. Interesting. What I mean by that, he, he says things that are familiar to Wayne to, to drop his guard, to let his guard down and go. I mean, you can almost picture it in your head where he's reading. It's an unexpected package, right? Wow. We have heard rumors that people thought that Wayne might have been paranoid uh, about one thing or another. So what if this letter accompanied this thing just for the sole purpose of increasing the likelihood that the target flicks the switch and you can picture him reading the letter and identify, you know, recognizing the names in it. Oh, you did business with me before picking up the flashlight with his other hand and just flicking the switch and boom. Yeah. 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 And that's also the length of the letter. How uh, it's a little bit longer. 
than it you know really needs to be mm-hmm. is that so he's you know reading with one hand and just messing with the you know flashlight and then flips it on yeah and and i think a lot of this too is the uh you know the ps didn't realize you had moved had some trouble finding you i don't know it, have a very merry christmas and may you never have to buy another flashlight there that to me is the is the taunt kind of at the right. end yeah I don't know that if there was any intention for this letter to make Wayne picture somebody or think of someone before he ended up being killed. I don't think that that was actually the purpose of this. Okay. A couple questions for you. I'll start off with, do you think the letter was to get his attention or do you think it's a decoy? What's your gut telling you again? I really, or maybe it's not telling you anything. I ultimately think that it was, the sole purpose of the letter was to increase the chances that Wayne would be the one to flick the switch of the power switch to, to ignite the bomb, causing it to explode, hoping that he would be by himself. And and part of that is the psychology behind um, who would have sent this, the perpetrator that, okay. So the police believe that this individual would have held a deep seated grudge or deep seated hatred for, Wayne. Right. And then here's the other thought though, too, if they are correct. Now this is not a 100% etched in stone statement by the police, but they did, they did say in an interview that, look, we actually believe that it's more likely that the individual wasn't close to Wayne in the months leading up to his death, because we think that there are actions made to lead us to believe that they believe that Wayne still lived in Acton and didn't live at this farm in, in Moffat. So their thought is if they are right about this, that if this means that something happened to put between this individual and Wayne months before, before the actual death, because he moved almost six months before the bomb was sent to the house. So somebody had a grudge against him and they were patient enough to sit on this grudge for at least months could have been years. Right. So, and then on top of that, police profiled the sender of the letter and, and, and stated that the person likely had a deep seated hatred for Wayne, but also wasn't comfortable with confrontation and pre- preferred to retaliate from a distance. Now that goes along with just about most every other bomber case that we've ever seen. That's the psychology behind these bombers. The thought is that it, on the spectrum on ways to attack and kill another individual, that sending a bomb to someone, especially through the mail, is one of the most cowardice ways to to attack and kill them. And what they mean by that is just the, the actual simplicity of it's not up front and, and close in your face. This is not someone looking you in the eyes and choking you to death or stabbing you to death, or even shooting you from a distance. So you're saying the cowardly lion is still a suspect. What I'm saying is that this individual is probably not comfortable with some kind of physical confrontation with Wayne or likely with anyone. Okay, so the the next question then would be, do you think this is coming from male or female? Typically, if you're going to play the numbers game, typically um, males are bombers. 
Um, well, if you play the numbers games, males are murderers and 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 shooters and and mass explosions and terrorists more so than females are. Right, but but I mean, when you're talking about this specific type of attack, that's typically a male. Uh, more times than not, it's committed by a male. Where like so. On the same spectrum of being a coward, um, typically you would see like with poisonings, that's often conducted by a female. Right. And there's a little more, poisonings are a little more sadistic in the sense that a lot of times with with uh, a poisoning, a wo- it usually comes from a woman that is close to the individual because what we find in the long run is they prefer to watch the individual suffer. <laughs> evil well they prefer to watch the individual suffer where think about the person mailing the bomb their whole intent is to kill they're not they're they're they have no intention they have no intention of watching the person suffer or watching the person die right because they they mailed the bomb that's the now is that right all of the time 100 percent of the time no you know like i like i was talking to somebody the other day and they were saying well you know it's it's never this until it is this one time that it is this. So, but playing the numbers game, it, it would be a, a male who is coward, who, who's a coward that decided to mail. And the other thing too, that's, that's the recklessness of it. Right. Is that knowing that I'm going to send this thing that could explode and kill someone else. I'm not directing the bullet. I'm not steering the bullet. I'm sending this, this, this murderous weapon this murderous right. item out into out into the universe, hoping that it reaches my target. Right. And we and we also heard from his family stating that Wayne was gone a lot traveling. So uh, you, you almost uh, again, like you were going back to your point, this kind of just popped up in my head with him traveling so much that what if his wife opened the letter and then she read it and was like, oh, well, this is not for me. Right, I'm not going to explore this package anymore. Right. And then we do have his name on the outside of the package. That's another preventative measure to hope that Wayne's the only one that opens it up. Furthermore, the thing here, too, is as the police and investigators stated, these are not explosives. This thing was not constructed in a manner that you could slam it against a table, hit it with a hammer, Uh toss it out a window, and it will explode. It was constructed. This device was constructed in a manner that it has to be triggered by the on switch of the flashlight. Therefore, again, really pinpointing your target. I mean, we have the mail carrier who drove around with this thing for half a day in her, in her vehicle, along with her uh, son or daughter or grandson in the vehicle with her. And then we have Wayne's son, Justin, who picks it up. He's actually the one that picked it up at the mailbox. Right. He puts it in his vehicle, drives into town to get gas, and then brings it back to the house. So you have all these instances where it could have blown someone else up. The other thing that's crazy, too, is that remember we have the remark of, of uh, I believe her name was Joyce, the, um, the mail carrier. Yeah. So she says... Of the things that she remembered about the package, she specifically remembered this package for two reasons. One, it was decorative. It had some kind of bow or ribbon on the front of it. Two, it fit almost exactly inside the mailbox. Now, I've I've read a lot of things where people have discussed the possibility of 
does this mean something again? Was this deliberate or was it just happenstance? Some people to the extent of saying, well, would this individual have gone to the Gravette home and figured out the, the dimensions of their mailbox, right? Which is interesting to me on, on for several different reasons. One, like I've never lived in Canada, nor have I received a package while living in Canada, but going off of what we know here, it's not that complicated of a system. If the package doesn't fit in the mailbox, it's placed in a location where the recipient will pick it up, you know, at their doorstep, on their driveway, something, right? Right. So I don't know that necessarily anyone had to go to the mailbox to know the dimensions of such. Well, it could have been as simple as they went to the post office and in question, how, how big of a box can I ship? in this certain situation, just like when we ship merchandise, I mean, that's one of the things that we have to figure out what kind of box can we use for a mug? What can we use for a t-shirt? But back to that same thought, I also wonder, I I've not seen pictures of the Gravette mailbox, but I mean, here aren't most mailboxes generally about the same size. Yeah. There's probably a standard size. Yeah. And then on top of that, the, the one thing that I think is, is uh significant is the extra postage to to ensure that this thing is absolutely delivered and you said well of course you don't want this explosive device returning to you <laughs> no well no no and that that's that's a very you know reasonable thing to say but at the same time we've also gone through the construction of the bomb it's not a bomb that's that's highly unstable and it's also not going to be returned to you. It's going to be returned to this address where these other people live. Right, right, right. You know what I mean? It's not going to return to you. Yeah. It, it's going to return to these innocent people that live at that that address, that, that address that you attach to William J. French. All right. Thanks, everybody, for chilling with us here in the garage today. If you want to check out our full archive, you can get that on the Stitcher app. And if you want to check out our other show off the record, it's available at Stitcher Premium. And so much more to get to in this case tomorrow. Until then, be good, be kind, and don't litter. Tillamook Chocolate Collection Ice Cream is a total chocolate game changer. We start with unbelievably creamy dark chocolate ice cream. Then we add different chocolate treats like chocolate cookies, chocolate cake, or chocolate brownies to make four decadent chocolate flavors. Because sometimes the thing that pairs best with chocolate (laughs) is more chocolate. Tillamook Chocolate Collection Ice Cream. Extraordinary Dairy.